I thus address the world through the medium of the latest wonderful invention, so that my voice, like my great show, will reach future generations and be heard centuries after I have joined the great, and as I believe, happy majority. Welcome to Becoming Barnum, the journey to fame and fortune, a podcast presented by the Barnum Museum in Bridgeport, Connecticut, and based on their award-winning blog series. Support for this project is presented to the Barnum Museum from the City of Bridgeport American Rescue Plan Act Funds, Peoples United, a division of M&T Bank, and the Connecticut Humanities and National Endowment for the Humanities as part of the Federal American Rescue Plan Act. The Barnum Museum has a special treasure in its collection, a 750-page copybook of letters written by Phineas Taylor Barnum when he was traveling in Europe in the 1840s, introducing his young protege, General Tom Thumb, to high society and royalty, as well as millions of ordinary people. Barnum's lively letters to friends, family members, and business associates reveal him more completely as a person at times struggling mightily to make the three-year tour a success, all the while directing the management of his American museum from afar. They also offer insights into Barnum as a husband, father, and nephew, and as a mentor to the child actor-entertainer whose popularity resulted in their meteoric rise to fame and fortune. In his mid-30s at the time, Barnum proved himself a tireless go-getter, calculating risk-taker, and astute entrepreneur decades before his name was attracting crowds to the greatest show on earth. These letters offer a window into the hard-scrabble era of show business, revealing how Barnum went about acquiring, hiring, and commissioning attractions, and promoting his museum and the General Tom Thumb Tour in Europe. Join us as we travel back in time to learn, through Barnum's own words, about the real person behind the legendary P.T. Barnum. Barnum and Catlin. In this episode, we'll explore the connection between P.T. Barnum and another famous showman, a lawyer-turned-artist, George Catlin. Catlin's early 19th-century portraits of Native Americans are his most famous legacy. But like Barnum, he possessed the determination to seek success in many arenas. A letter to Catlin in Barnum's copybook popped up this week. It was written while Barnum was in Paris fine-tuning the arrangements for the conclusion of General Tom Thumb's Tour of France. Barnum was also reaching out to look for new and profitable opportunities— especially because the entourage had made so little money on the French tour, aside from their time in Paris, where the crowds could not get enough of General Tom Poos. On first reading, the proposal Barnum made to Catlin on November 8, 1845, seems like a middle-of-the-night brainstorm that should never have made it to pen and paper come morning. Rereading the letter confirms that the idea was abhorrent, and further investigation reveals that this wasn't a novel and untested idea for Barnum in 1845. Worse, it points to a disturbing piece of history, exposing another deep injustice that should not be forgotten or swept out of sight. 
Anglo-American men showing Native American people as curiosities in Europe and having them perform for royalty. Given the dire circumstances of most tribes in 19th century America, reduced to poverty after being uprooted and pushed to places far from their home territories, one might question how much agency any of the people who signed on to do this actually had. Was there really much choice? In retrospect, we can also understand this as a risky choice, because a significant number of Native Americans who went to Europe succumbed to contagious diseases, having little or no immunity to the pathogens. But first, before we look at Barnum's correspondence, let's get some of the background on George Catlin. He was 14 years older than Barnum, born in 1796, and today is best known for the hundreds of portraits he made of Native American people in the early to mid-19th century. Like Barnum, Catlin was an energetic promoter, prolific in his field, diverse in his talents, and an adventurous man with great drive and energy. Unlike Barnum, he had received a formal education, having graduated from the Litchfield Law School in Connecticut to follow his father's profession as a lawyer. He was admitted to the bar in 1819, but life as a lawyer did not suit him, and in the early 1820s he left the profession to attend art school in Philadelphia. He favored portrait painting, but his style was not as refined as the academic portrait artists who painted society's wealthy and elite, so he received few commissions or praise. He turned his sights instead toward recording the faces and clothing of the indigenous peoples of America. In the 1830s, he moved west, using St. Louis as his base for several trips to Native American territories. He visited 50 tribes, and from these visits he created a large body of paintings and assembled them as Catlin's Indian Gallery. But the enterprise failed to become a reliable source of income. As it turned out, the American public was not that interested in paying to see portraits of Native Americans. Catlin tried to get the U.S. government to purchase his paintings, but did not succeed with that either. These disappointments led Catlin to take the collection abroad in 1839, where he exhibited in the major cities of Europe over the next several years. Praised by critic Charles Baudelaire, Catlin's Indian gallery became popular with a public that was far more curious about Native American people and the artifacts and objects of their culture. Barnum became acquainted with Catlin in England when he, Barnum, arrived there in early 1844. This came about after General Tom Thumb's audience with Queen Victoria sparked even greater popular interest in seeing Barnum's Man in Miniature. A bigger exhibition space was needed, and according to Barnum's autobiography, they moved into the largest room in London's Egyptian Hall. This space had been occupied by Catlin, and his Indian gallery of paintings and curiosities was actually still in place. One can only imagine the incongruous setting for Tom Thumb greeting his audiences and giving his brief performances. However, that may just reflect a 21st century perspective. Audiences of that time would likely have been accustomed to seeing a variety of unrelated things together in one space. The next part is where the darker side of this story begins, with information we get from Barnum's autobiography. During General Tom Thumb's tour of the British Isles, Barnum had heard the Lancashire bell ringers perform with their dozens of handbells, and he was so impressed by their talent that he arranged with them to go to America, where they would perform at his museum and then go on tour, for which he hired a manager. 
Barnum felt he should compensate England for the extended absence of the beloved bell ringers by finding a novel exchange. So he sent an agent to America for a party of Indians, including squaws. The agent went to Iowa and then returned to London with 16 Native Americans, including children, who were subsequently exhibited by Catlin throughout the British Isles. As Barnum notes, they were on our joint account and were finally left in his sole charge. As far as the retelling in Barnum's book, the story ended there. What we learn elsewhere is that Catlin took the group to France and traveled around to show them off and make money. King Louis-Philippe, in particular, was fascinated by the Iowan people and their war dances, and even had Catlin make copies of some of his portraits. The exploitation of people in this way seems a cruel thing to begin with, but as weeks and months passed, the situation became far worse. Tragedy struck as one after another succumbed to contagious diseases. The survivors were distraught with grief, but were not allowed to grieve in the ways they were accustomed to. Instead, they were constantly on exhibit or traveling to the next place. Completely controlled by white men who knew nothing of their culture and values, the Iowans must have felt intense resentment, sorrow, and anger at their situation. One cannot deny that terrible injustices were inflicted upon them. So with the knowledge of this very troubling entertainment history, the proposal Barnum made to Catlin will give pause. We'll get to that letter in a minute. Like other uncomfortable truths, it needs to be acknowledged first, then considered in the context of its time to gain some understanding without trying to excuse it. We also need to acknowledge the consequences and long-term damage of painful realities that have been brushed aside and forgotten by many, though not by those whom they hurt or devastated. Barnum and Catlin's cavalier involvement in procuring and exhibiting Iowan and Ojibwa people is inexcusable, even if it reflects behavior that Anglo-Americans and Europeans found acceptable at the time. Earlier letters in the copybook suggest that the Barnum and Catlin families, both with young children, spent time together in Paris during the first half of 1845. This was the time frame when Catlin had the Iowans performing for the king. Writing from Bordeaux in August, Barnum informed three correspondents of the melancholy news he had just learned. Catlin's young wife and mother of the couple's four children had died that summer in Paris. Clara Bartlett Gregory and George Catlin had been married since 1828. Barnum appears to have liked Mrs. Catlin and probably thought she was unusually courageous and adventurous in having accompanied her husband on one of his trips to the Western Territories. On August 8th, Barnum added a postscript to his friend Brewster, telling him, I am much grieved to hear of the death of poor Mrs. Catlin. She has left behind her family of helpless and interesting children. Sadly, the Catlin's youngest child would also die that year. Barnum also conveyed the news of Mrs. Catlin's death to another, though unnamed, correspondent, possibly Sherwood Stratton. And eight days later, he wrote to Mr. West, an editor at the New York Atlas, asking him to publish a notice in his paper. Will you announce the death of Mrs. Catlin, wife of George Catlin, the proprietor and painter of the Indian Portraits Gallery? She died in Paris 2nd or 3rd August, and is buried in the cemetery of Père Lachaise. Her disease was consumption. She has left several interesting young children. She was sister to D.L. Gregory, 
late or present mayor of Jersey City. Just three months after Clara Catlin's death, Barnum was writing to George Catlin Esquire with his proposal. Sir, believing that an union of the exhibition of the Ojibwa Indians and that of General Tom Thumb might be beneficial to both you and me, I make you the following proposition. That is to say, to give two seances, or performances, per day at the Salle Vivienne, Indians and Tom Thumb, commencing November 12th and finishing December 14th, on the following terms. The rent of saloon, gas, fire, bill printing, journals, and such other expenses as may legitimately be required for the exhibition to be deducted from the gross receipts, and the balance to be divided as follows. One-third to you, and the other two-thirds to me. I will guarantee that the receipts shall be more than all of the expenses above named or referred to. All expenses of the ordinary exhibition of Tom Poos, such as interpreter, little equipage, persons to exhibit him and attend equipage and piano and pianist, shall be paid by me. All expenses attending the care and food of the Indians, their costumes, etc., to be paid by you. The transporting of the Indians and Tom Thumb to and from the Salle shall be considered a portion of the expenses. If we think best, and whenever we think best, to have the Indians go into the public streets for attracting visitors, the hire of carriages for that purpose shall be at the expense of you and me. That is, it shall be deducted from receipts in the same manner as any other expenses before named. In five, you shall have one-third and two-third of the net profits of this joint exhibition, each of us furnishing on our own account all the men and accessories at present used for our respective exhibitions. I am, dear sir, truly your obedient servant, P.T. Barnum. Frankly, it feels painful to read that letter, knowing what happened to the Iowan people and realizing that the Ojibwa people could be caught in the same terrible situation. Whether Barnum continues to correspond with Catlin about this proposal remains to be seen. He may move on to other concerns. In any case, there was little time for an answer from Catlin. The plan was to begin on November 12th, only four days after Barnum wrote the letter. Stay tuned. Thanks for listening to this episode of Becoming Barnum, The Journey to Fame and Fortune. This podcast was produced by the Barnum Museum. All episodes are based on the blog series Barnum's Letters from Abroad by Adrian St. Pierre, curator of the Barnum Museum. Editing and sound design are by Rui Pinna, and narration by William Saris. Kathleen Marr is our executive director, and John Swing is our chief operations officer. Please visit our website at www.barnum-museum.org to learn more about the museum. Don't forget to connect with us on social media and visit the Barnum Museum's YouTube channel for behind-the-scenes presentations of our fascinating collections and more stories about the legendary showman. Please tune in next time as we continue our adventures in Europe with P.T. Barnum.